With that, I would love to welcome everyone to this week's Citizens Climate Training Program. It's a weekly webinar of Citizens Climate Lobbies that provides CCL supporters like you and I with access to in-depth training opportunities on topics related to climate change and effective climate advocacy. I'm your host, Brett Cease, and tonight we're gonna dive into a clean energy transition, ask me anything. As we head into 2024, what questions do you have about the clean energy transition? We're gonna be joined by superstar researcher, Dr. Jesse Jenkins, lead author of the Net Zero America study, a big report that CCLers have been a huge fan of, and Princeton assistant professor of mechanical and aerospace engineering for an Ask Me Anything to present his groundbreaking climate research with Princeton's Zero Lab and field your questions. So yeah, Jesse Jenkins is an assistant professor and macro scale energy systems engineer at Princeton. He's got a PhD in engineering systems and a master's in technology and policy from MIT. And he spent six years as an energy and climate policy analyst prior to embarking on his academic career. At Princeton, Jesse leads the Zero Carbon Energy Systems Research and Optimization Lab, the Zero Lab, and the Repeat Project. Uh, the Zero Lab focuses on improving and applying energy systems models to evaluate and optimize low carbon energy technologies, guide investment and research in innovative energy technologies, and generate insights to improve energy and climate policy and planning decisions. And the Repeat Project provides a uh, regular, timely, and independent environmental and economic evaluation of federal energy and climate policies as they're proposed and enacted. And it was the repeat project that identified that the rate at which we build uh, our electrical transmission infrastructure is a key bottleneck that could prevent us from realizing most of the climate benefits of the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, and that report was really critical in informing CCL's decision to add clean energy permitting reform as part of our policy agenda. Uh, so Jesse, CCR really values and appreciates the great work you're doing. So thanks for giving us some of your time on a Tuesday night, and we'll hand the floor over to you to talk a little bit about some of the stuff you're doing before we jump into the questions. Great. Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, thanks, Dana and uh, and Brett for inviting me, and uh, thanks to all of you for spending some of your time here um, and even more of your time with CCL pushing for effective uh, climate policy. Appreciate everyone who's spending their time in that effort. Um, I'll give a quick intro to the research group that I built here at Princeton and the kind of work that we do um, and how we intend for that to help accelerate the clean energy transition. Um, and then we can dive right into all the great questions. I already see a bunch of fun ones uh, in the queue there. So let me share my screen here. So I lead a group uh, at Princeton uh, that we call the Zero Lab. That's short for Zero Carbon Energy Systems Research and Optimization Lab. Our focus here is really on providing decision support for the energy transition. So that means trying to conduct research that can improve real world decision making and by doing so accelerate rapid, affordable and effective transitions to our goal of a net zero carbon energy system. That's of course the point where all of the human caused greenhouse gas emissions uh, that might remain are exactly equaled out by human caused removals of CO2 and other greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. That's the day that we stop digging ourselves a deeper hole when it comes to future climate impacts. Unfortunately, it doesn't mean the end of climate change since climate change, as most of you probably know, is driven by cumulative greenhouse gas emissions. So we got to get to that goal as quickly as possible to limit cumulative greenhouse gas emissions as well. And of course, once we stop digging ourselves a deeper hole, maybe we can figure out ways to climb back out again. 
So that's our focus, uh, our motivation for the research that we do. Um, and as you can tell, it's not a sort of ivory tower concept. It's a very real world motivated, um, you know, practical set of questions. The perspective that we take and the kind of frame that we um, approach this challenge with is the, what we call macro energy systems. So this is a focus on how energy systems operate uh, and evolve at a national or regional scale. So we're thinking not about engineering individual technologies or um, you know, power plants or, or refineries, other kinds of systems at that scale, but rather how does say the entire Eastern interconnection electricity system function and evolve? How do all the individual technologies, the consumers, the end use devices, the flexible demand, you know, all of the things that uh, interact um, uh, on both the supply and the demand side of that market operate? What are the economic incentives that guide their behavior? And how does policy shape uh, and change those systems over time? Uh, and so we build modeling tools to try to represent energy systems at that macro scale. Um, and those are primarily based on optimization methods. So that means that we're basically representing these energy systems in a series of mathematical equations that reflect the core or most important um, engineering, economic, and policy constraints that guide how those systems operate. And then we try to find uh, or predict um, plausible paths for planning decisions, like how you know what infrastructure, uh, clean energy, or otherwise you might build or retire over you know, a horizon or five or 10 or, or 30 years into the future um, and how those decisions might be influenced by changes in those underlying constraints or the cost of technologies or the availability of new innovative technologies um, or the influence of policies like um, clean energy standards or carbon pricing or, or other provisions. So they're great tools to kind of look into our future. I wouldn't say they're crystal balls for prediction, but more for exploration of possible futures, kind of an internally consistent representation of the world that we can hit with a policy or a you know novel technology and see how it responds and use those tools to kind of build insight about the aggregate uh, impacts of certain things or how about how these systems operate at scale. It's particularly important because often these things aren't immediately intuitive. They're sort of emergent properties or effects that, you know, when you start playing with one knob over here, something kind of interesting happens over there and you have to trace back exactly what's happening to understand it. And when we do that, we build a greater understanding of how energy systems work and the kinds of strategies that we need to pursue uh, to get to net zero while maintaining, you know, affordability and reliability and, and other goals that we have. So I break my research group up into three program areas. The first is our sort of methods development group. You know, if we're going to answer these questions, they're always computationally constrained. These models, even with big supercomputing clusters that we have, we're always running out of time and 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 memory for for computing. And so um, we have to make smart choices about how to design these models. We can't represent everything in reality. We have to make abstractions all the time. And so what are the right choices to make about the design of these systems or these models? And then how do we improve their underlying computational performance through algorithms and, and um, uh, faster methods for solving these models? You know, the faster we can get, the bigger, the more complicated model we can get to solve in the sort of 24 hours that we have to let our our, our servers uh, churn away overnight while we're waiting for results. So um, we're building better tools all the time, um, both you know more fine-grained representations of the world than the changing energy system that we're looking at and underlying computational tools to, to make that all work. And then we use those models for two main kind of pr applied program areas. One is our technology evaluation program where we're trying to really get a, a feel for a range of emerging technologies that could uh, that are coming into the market now, but won't scale up to have a really big impact for the next five or 10 or 20 years. 
So think about things like long duration energy storage technologies or industrial electrification or um, uh, fusion power plants or advanced fission nuclear power plants, enhanced geothermal energy. These sort of technologies that are being built, you know, maybe first of a kind over the next couple of years and then scale up from there. Um, we can use our models to basically build representations of the future energy systems those technologies will have to compete in. You don't want to have them compete in today's market or today's energy system because it's going to change dramatically by the time they reach scale. And so we build possible futures that they you know, might inhabit, and then we add these technologies in. We play with their design or their performance on different dimensions, whether that's cost or flexibility or efficiency. And we try to then understand what characteristics of these technologies make them truly viable and have a, ensure that they'll have a significant impact. And then we can kind of back up from those insights to inform today's policy decisions around DOE programs or priorities, private sector investment decisions like venture capital, and even the engineering and innovation activities of individual technology companies or developers. Do I focus my energy on this or that, which has the greatest impact in the long term? We can provide insights like that. And then the third area is our uh, net zero energy systems transitions uh, studies. So these are more practical and policy uh, and planning oriented studies for particular places in the world that are trying to undergo a clean energy transition um, where we can use our models to provide decision support for stakeholders and policymakers and others. Um, and that's where projects like the Repeat Project and Net Zero America focused on the US transition fit in. We've also done a number of studies at more local scales or regional scales like the first study to look at what it would take for California to reach its 100% carbon-free electricity law that it passed in 2018, um, or uh, New Jersey, where I am now, uh, where we've been exploring different policy options to accelerate New Jersey's transition to 100% carbon-free electricity as well, um, which has informed the design of state-level policy that's uh, currently uh, pending in, in the legislature here in, in New Jersey. So a pretty wide range of studies, um, you know, again, sometimes looking at you know, theoretically, what would it, we want to do or what would it take to get to net zero? That's where the Net Zero America study was focused with kind of, you know, uh, nice smooth transitions to net zero. And then we back out different pathways to get there. Other times we're more looking at what would specific policy interventions do. And those are less ideal usually, but more practical and more likely to be implemented. And so we, we use our tools to evaluate those as well. So I think I'll, I'll stop there. Um, we are, unfortunately, we don't have a website. We are uh, launching one very shortly uh, to collect all of our work in one place. So check back uh, later, but you can keep tabs on our work um, via my Twitter feed or x.com feed, I suppose it's called now, uh, at Blue Sky or other profiles. I'm, I'm sure we can put links up uh, later in the chat. So thanks for uh, listening to the intro. Hopefully that gives you a feel for what we're, do what we're doing um, and uh, happy to answer questions. Yeah, great. Thanks, Jesse. That was a nice introduction summary. Uh, I'm actually going to ask the first question because I can, um, and so I'm going to take advantage of my position here. Um, so in uh, my introduction of you, I mentioned that uh, you're uh, the Princeton repeat study that identified the importance of building out electrical transmission infrastructure faster. Um, but since that analysis was done, there's been some progress in that area. Um, you know, FERC has put out some proposed rulemakings, and there are some permitting reforms, NEPA reforms passed in the debt ceiling deal, and there have been some big transmission lines uh, finally approved. So do you have any sense about how much progress we've made in that area over the past year or so? Yeah, it's a great question. In fact, one that we're trying to start a new project to be able to actually quantify and answer. Um, so we're 
I'm working on a proposal now to, for something like a national um, or an annual transmission outlook or update, you know, that would basically look at that, you know, what projects are under construction, which ones have been permitted and approved and are underway, you know, if they were built on time, what were, how, how far would that get us? Um, so I can't really answer quantitatively, but I can say that I'm, we're making some progress. I think, you know, thanks to our work and many others advocacy that you've done and, and others to sort of elevate this issue it really shot to the top of the energy policy agenda in Washington very quickly after the passage or even part of the passage of IRA with uh, Manchin originally proposing a permitting bill that would go alongside uh, IRA and eventually was taken up later, but not advanced. Um, so it's interesting, you know, we, we basically with the Inflation Reduction Act, what we effectively have done is put clean energy on sale right? All, all of the incentives in the law, you know, 10% off here, 50% off there, 30% off for this, um, effectively lower the cost of clean energy and try to shift all the economic incentives on the green side of the ledger. Now, of course, that's instead of raising the cost of fossil energy, which is the other way you can, you know, tip the scales, which is, you know, what you would do with carbon pricing. Um, but either way, what you're trying to do is, you know, shift the balance so that it's just a smarter economic decision for households or businesses or utilities or others to invest or choose the cleaner option over the dirtier option. And so we've effectively done that with the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, pretty powerful incentives across virtually every sector and every technology that you would want to include in a net zero pathway. That's necessary, but not sufficient, right? Um, because, of course, economics is not the only constraint. Um, but now that it is profitable and cost effective and exciting to go try to take on these opportunities, then a whole nother set of challenges and sort of non-cost related barriers, which we spent a lot of time in the Net Zero America study trying to surface as well in 2020, um, become the next kind of binding constraints, right? How fast can you build stuff? Can you develop social buy-in or social license for the infrastructure that we need to build at scale? How fast can you raise capital and, and you know, mobilize capital to invest in these sectors? Can you train the workforce that you need? These are the kinds of challenges we face now. Those are good problems to have because if we weren't moving quickly or didn't want to move quickly towards clean energy, they wouldn't really be problems, um, but they're the next ones to solve. And so permitting reform has kind of risen to the top of the list uh, as one of those issues. Um, my general take on the issue is that you know we have permitting systems that and, and broad regulatory systems around infrastructure development that really took shape in the, you know, 70s and 80s um, in response to the major, you know, national build out of our infrastructure that occurred from the kind of New Deal era through the post-war boom, which is when we primarily built out all the major infrastructure in the country. We still enjoy all of the benefits of that infrastructure now, um, generations later, but of course we built it out in ways that disadvantaged significant communities, right? We built highways through poor, mostly brown and black communities without much say and input that, you know, really just cut them right in half and uh, bulldoze through homes. We've developed infrastructure in ways that without much regard to the environmental impact of that. And so there's some, some very natural responses to set up procedures that would constrain that process and slow it down and inject public accountability and environmental considerations, right, which are all reasonable, important things to do. Now we're at a phase where we have to build again at a pace that we really haven't seen since that, you know, that post-war era. Um, and I don't think the, you know, the systems we have in place now are really kind of fit for that purpose, right? Um, we haven't been building things as a country at anywhere near that scale. We just don't engage in kind of national scale infrastructure. And we haven't for 30 or 40 years, basically my whole life. Um, and so I think we need to be broadly creative and, you know, things like shortening NEPO or streamlining processes and designated lead agencies. I mean, these are kind of very common sense reforms, 
but I think they're just the tip of the iceberg. We really need to think much more broadly and creatively about how to structure the process of getting public input, which is critical from all voices, hearing that input, having it actually shape decision-making, but then being able to move forward or not, you know, yes or no decisions in a much more um, straightforward and less drawn out way with less veto points along the way. So it's like one big decision, yes or no, and then you're good to go if it's yes. And if not, you can get back to work planning the next project. Whereas right now we have like all of these veto points that have been created, you know, and you have to get through all 10 of them, any single one of which could could kill a project. And that just makes it very difficult to build infrastructure in this country. And I think it's responsible for a lot of the overruns and, and delays that, that we have. So, um, you know, some small, I think, targeted reforms made in Congress so far, but a lot more work to be done uh, on that front. And I think a lot more creativity because we have to go faster and we can't afford to do it in the way that we did in the 1950s, right? We still need to be able to find ways to, to have public input and to avoid inequitable outcomes um, so that the communities that are seeing the kind of impact of these projects are also seeing benefits that are commensurate. Yeah, you sound a lot like our permitting reform communications materials. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get to the, the top voted question here. For permitting issues, which is the bigger issue, local siting, state regulations, or federal policy? And where would the advocates focus be in this place? Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on the technology or area you're talking about, types of infrastructure. I think in most cases, local siting is actually probably the biggest source of friction and the biggest area where... It, we really could benefit, I think, from grassroots, you know, groups showing up and saying, yes, I want this, right? If you also think about it, the whole environmental movement, in addition to all of our sort of regulatory processes, the whole environmental movement came about to basically say no to excessive things, right? Again, legitimate reasons to say no to a lot of projects and a lot of, a lot of things. Um, but we don't really have a grassroots movement or organizations built around the idea of what do we need to build? Like, yes, we need to go make sure that we you know, get these projects cited and get them built. And here's the benefits that go along with that. Um, and so I think, you know, it's easy for a relatively small group of, of very concerned citizens to show up to a local siting board, you know, and, and, you know, air their grievances and, you know, and kill a project with that in a way that is not truly democratic, right? It's, it's participatory, gives them a chance to have a voice, but it isn't necessarily representative of the broader views of a community. And so if you're a member of that community and, you know, you may not be as motivated to show up, if you're not really mad about the project. And so a lot of people stay home. So whether that's, you know, transit oriented housing development or, um, you know, wind farm siting or solar farm siting, um, these are kinds of uh, forum where it actually is very helpful, I think, for, for, you know, yes, in my backyard kind of voices to show up and say, this is exactly the kind of infrastructure or decision we do need to be making if we want to reach our clean energy goals or we want to see local economic development or reduce housing costs or whatever the sort of benefits that you see. So I think local siting is a great area to focus on. Um, some states have taken some of those local siting decisions back to the state level, some relatively recently, some have always been there. So like Illinois and New York are kind of centralizing some of these decisions. You know, that can be effective at getting more projects built, but it also runs the risk of generating local backlash because people don't feel like they actually have a voice anymore. So, you know, we got to be careful about that. And there's a similar issue around transmission and other linear infrastructure that crosses lots of jurisdictions. I think it is very difficult for those to be cited in every, you know, like to have the citing authority at the level of every jurisdiction you go through. It, I do think, you know, nationally important transmission should be cited at the national level, the federal level. 
um, and that that's consistent with our broad, you know, commerce clause in the in the in in the Constitution that you know interstate commerce is the domain of the federal government. Um, and it's not the case today. Today, you know, transmission lines have to be cited by each state that they pass through. Sometimes those two states devolve things even further down to the local counties. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think continuing to push for federal siting and cost allocation authority for transmission lines of national importance, maybe not every line, but those that are sort of nationally important to security um, of the grid, to clean energy goals, and to interstate commerce, or, uh, you know, should be considered at the federal level. Uh, so again, it kind of depends on which, you know, where you're, where you're talking about, but a lot of these decisions are made locally. Great. Thanks. Uh, so next question, let's say, what are some of the biggest risks or challenges to the clean energy transition, uh, we're facing in the next five to 10 years? And also what do you wish that you hmm. could model that you currently can't? That's a great question. Um, so on the, what do we wish we could model? We currently can't front, I mean, modeling, permitting reform or these sorts of non-economic frictions is very difficult for us to do. We can model economic incentives very clearly. We can model hard constraints. So sometimes we kind of get at this with, you know, scenarios that sort of like, for example, the constrained transmission case, you say, well, what if you couldn't build transmission any faster than you could, you know, over the last 10 years? Well, we found that that would sacrifice. Originally, we found 80% of our preliminary results. Now it's 50% of the emissions reductions of our updated analysis would be lost if we couldn't move any faster than that. Um, you know, that's huge, right? But that isn't to say that that's a prediction that we can't move faster than we did in the past, right? That's just was something easy to put into a model. So um, we have been trying to talk about ways that we could sort of, you know, kind of Gantt chart out all of these processes that are going on to deliver the infrastructure that shows up in our models. And then be able to have a more mechanistic understanding of okay, if you if you increase the success rate of this piece or you shorten that piece of the chart, would it actually speed up the process, or would you just run into the next thing that now is constraining? Because there's you know five different processes that move concurrently. Um, we just don't really understand that well enough to really model it in any kind of causal way, and that prevents us from doing things like saying okay, well you went and you shortened judicial review for these things. Like okay, that's this little piece of this process. You know how much does that actually speed things up? I don't know. I mean it's it's we just can't say, and so it's very difficult for us to model those kinds of things. Um, other things that we're getting better at, I think, are things like supply side constraints, like the supply chain and how rapidly it develops. We are seeing, you know, announced projects for, you know, clean energy manufacturing or, or things like that, that give us some leading indicators to help us better constrain and parameterize our models. So I think that's getting better and less speculative as we move forward. Um, and then the other one that's just really challenging is social, like social license, like where can you actually build stuff? I can tell you where it makes sense to build things in our model. Um, but we, again, kind of, we, we, we have a whole set of, you know, areas for wind and solar, for example, we have a whole ge geospatial analysis, little country, we exclude a bunch of areas, right. That, you know, for things that are administratively clear, like, you know, can't build in state parks and can't build, you know, wind farms near airports because of uh, radar interference, you know, things like that, that are very cut and dry. But then you have this huge swath of the country left that theoretically could cite wind and solar. But we know that you're not going to build it wall to wall in the very best sites. Like there's cumulative impacts that people aren't going to stomach. And so we kind of proxy that by putting in, you know, some roughly empirically derived, but historically, so it's not clear how predictive that is of the future, um, kind of an inverse curve of population density. So as population density goes up, the density of wind and solar that we permit to be cited goes down. 
And I think that's a decent kind of rough proxy for what's going on on the ground. But obviously, it's pretty rough. Like some communities have just said no, period, to anything. Whereas others, you know, maybe are totally fine for now. But once it gets to a threshold, we'll say no to anything further. It's just really hard uh, to do that concretely. Um, and so uh, I think those are all areas that are just, you know, we have to be humble and do our best to, to represent the modeling. You know, that touches on some of the big risks and challenges. I do think, again, social license is the one that keeps me up the most. Um, and then I would say also like the the need for innovation around the processes that can build social license. So that that's kind of what I, when I say permitting reform, I think I mean that much more broadly than, you know, changes to NEPA or other federal permit systems. I mean, can we build the institutional arrangements and processes that can get projects cited at the scale that we need while securing social license and buy-in from affected communities? That's the biggest challenge, I think, for me. Um, and I don't know what the answer is, right? I've got some, you know, some creative ideas that maybe make sense, but it's not my, like, that's not my core area of expertise, right? There are social scientists and community organizers and wind developers that know a lot more about that than me. Um, so I think we need to tap into that expertise and, and figure out some creative solutions very soon because we simply need to build at a scale that I literally haven't seen in my lifetime, right? We don't build infrastructure in this country at a substantial scale. And, and we're not talking about a, you know, a revolution of bits. We're talking about, you know, a revolution of, of, you know, steel and concrete and, and, uh, you know, thousand meter tall or hundred meter tall wind turbines. So people are going to see this in their lives, the construction, the infrastructure, et cetera. Um, and we have to find a way to kind of build a sense that this is a national mission that we're all taking part in that benefits the country and our future and, you know, our present in, in really tangible ways. And I think building that sense is, is maybe the biggest challenge that we have now that the economics makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Now we've got uh, a very CCL question. How important is national current price to the emissions reductions in the repeat scenarios or is carbon pricing even like a potential input into your modeling? Yeah. So um, when we do repeat, so the repeat project for those who are, are familiar, we've mentioned it a few times, but I should have introduced it more clearly. Uh, if you go to repeatproject.org, you can check it out. It's a project that we launched in 2021 to use the same suite of macro scale energy modeling tools that we built for Net Zero America, which was looking at kind of just how do we go from here to there in a nice uh, smooth transition um, to instead say, all right, there's no cap on emissions. There's no carbon price. There's no sort of idealized policy. All we have is real policies. How far do those get us, right? So the idea was to, to design a current policy scenario that captured what was already on the books. And then as Congress debated and introduced and hopefully enacted new policies, we could then add them and say, how much further does this get us towards our net zero pathway? And so that's exactly what we did during the 117th Congress, which was of course very active with the infrastructure law and then the Build Back Better Act, which eventually became the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, and so we modeled multiple versions of those laws as they were kind of coming uh, down the pipe. Um, and, and now, and since then we've modeled a sort of revised current policy scenario that you know, takes those now into our new baseline. And we're currently modeling all of the proposed regulations that are currently pending at the EPA and the Department of Energy. And we'll hopefully have an update in a month or, or so on with, with all of those rules to see, okay, how much further do those get us if they're all enacted? So because there isn't a national carbon price, it isn't in the model, right? That's not a scenario that we model and repeat. We do model a net zero pathway, which does has an, which is like an emissions cap and trade type uh, environment where we impose a hard constraint on emissions that gets us to our 50% below 2005 goal for 2030 and net zero by 2050 in kind of nice straight lines. 
that's used as a benchmark and referent to sort of say, are we moving closer to that goal? Um, but it's not to, you know, it's not a prediction of a, of a policy we're going to implement um, in the US, I don't think. Um, you could back out from that carbon prices consistent with those, but again, like they're, they get to be several hundred dollars per ton uh, in the 2030s and 40s. And I, I just, you know, I don't think there's a, li a likelihood that we're going to be enacting a massive, you know, national carbon price or a very hard emissions cap as a primary vehicle. So instead we're trying to use that more as a, as an idealized benchmark and saying, all right, what are the sort of messy set of real policies that we can get enacted that move us in that direction? Okay, thanks. So let's see, now we got a question uh, we need firm to oh, I, Sorry, I should say, as certain states do enact carbon prices like California, Washington, and the Reggie states, we do include those in our current policies case. Um, so, you know, we're, we're paying attention to the state policies out there too. Great, and hopefully Washington can maintain its carbon price. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we need some firm dispatchable power. Uh, those include nuclear, geothermal, thermal sources with carbon capture. What are your thoughts on the potential mix and benefits and risks of those? Yeah, so this is a category that I spent a lot of time researching in during my PhD and kind of sort of have helped kind of in so many ways like popularize the need for, for what we call clean firm or firm low carbon or firm dispatchable power. You know, what we basically have are three kind of positions in the team, as I kind of describe it in my talks, uh, you know, the, the low carbon team for the power sector. Um, we have variable renewable resources, which I describe as fuel saving technologies. So wind and solar primarily, right, but also run over hydro plants in some parts of the country. You know, these are technologies that are weather dependent, but they are free when you have them. And so what they do is displace higher cost, you know, fuel consuming resources like gas plants or coal plants. And, the, and they deliver some capacity value origin, initially, but once they get to high enough penetrations, the times when we need dispatchable capacity or reliable you know, power plants you can turn on or off is our times when the wind is not blowing and the sun is set, right? So winter you know, doldrums and things like that. And so they can't really contribute much capacity value beyond an initial level. And so mostly what they do is if, if the fuel and the pollution and the CO2 that they're displacing is worth more than the marginal, the average cost of production from these resources, then they're still worth it to add to our system, even though we can't rely on them all the time. And so I think of them like, you know, they're the, the you know, the star players on the team. They do most of what we need, but not everything, or the kind of staple in your, in your balanced diet, right? They're the, you know, the wheat and the, the rice and the other things that, you know, fill most of your calories. Um, and then you have the, what I call balancing resources or fast burst resources. And that's where batteries are playing a really big role now but also flexible charging of EVs, right? We've got tons of batteries rolling around in our cars. Um, uh, thermal storage in buildings or district heating systems potentially uh, that could shift around when we consume uh, electricity to run heat pumps or for heating. Uh, you know, all kinds of flexible loads like that. And then curtailable or, or you know, price responsive demand, right? If the price goes high enough, maybe I'll turn off, you know, one of my space heaters or I won't run the dishwasher or other things that reduce de uh, demand during uh, times of system stress. And there's lots of industrial demand response too. So those are all great at filling in variability and helping supply and demand match each other on hourly timescales, kind of within the day. So what does that leave? That leaves, you know, we have technologies that are weather dependent and variable and are kind of time delimited or energy delimited like batteries. So what we need is a technology that is available whenever we need it for as long as we need it, right? That's sort of the missing piece of the puzzle. And we rely today on natural gas and coal and existing nuclear plants for that. 
In fact, when we can't rely on the natural gas plants because their fuel isn't there or they freeze up like we've seen in some of these winter events, that's when things get really bad, right? That's when Texas had its full blackout. That's when we nearly lost the Eastern interconnection at, in the kind of Christmas Eve uh, 2023 or 2022 uh, winter storm, uh, Elliot. Uh, and we just had another one of these events uh, last week with the polar vortex where a lot of power plants went out. So when those firm plants aren't actually firm, we have big problems, but they can be made firm um, and then we have to rely on them in that role in the near term. But in the long term, we're going to have to displace all of the gas and coal plants as well to get to our net zero goals. And so what we kind of find is that you can get an 80 to 90% reduction in emissions just with wind, solar, batteries, demand flexibility, and maintaining existing gas and nuclear plants while retiring coal. That works, it maintains reliability. We've done that for California. We've done studies for PJM. We've done studies for elsewhere. It's pretty reliable finding um, from other work as well. So we can get a long way with just those technologies, but we can't go all the way to 100. And if energy demand is doubling, even 10 or 20% of residual emissions becomes like 40% of today's emissions. So it's still a big deal to eliminate. Um, and so the range of technologies here are all much more nascent and um, immature than we would like them to be and that, that wind and solar are. But that was true of wind and solar a decade or, or so ago, too. And so uh, that includes uh, advanced geothermal, which could either be enhanced geothermal, which basically uses hydraulic fracturing to create geothermal reservoirs that you can then simulate wa uh, 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 circulate water through to extract heat. Um, or closed loop geothermal. I advise a company called Ever in, uh, based in Alberta that builds these closed loop systems where you just drill uh, a bunch of lateral wells down and back and down and back and down and back at very low, de very deep uh, depths of seven, up to seven kilometers uh, to extract heat pretty much anywhere. Um, so those are both, both uh, Fervo, which is the leader in enhanced geothermal, the, a research partner of ours, and Ever, which is the leader in closed loop, are building, or actually if Ever just turned, or Fervo just turned on their first commercial projects. So, you know, first of a kind uh, right now, but they're going to need to build many, many, many more to come down the learning curves from, from there uh, and get cheaper. Then you have natural gas plants, particularly, I'm particularly interested, excited about the alum cycle, which is an oxy combustion power plant that net power is commercializing, that um, because it burns uh, gas in pure oxygen, doesn't have any nitrogen or soot emissions and can capture all of the CO2, 99.9% .9 of it in a very pure form that makes it cheaper to, to uh, capture. And it's the new working cycle that's much more efficient. So again, First of a kind plant being built in Texas, probably online by 2026, early 2026. And the company just went public through a SPAC, actually it was a, as a consultant advised the acquisition company while they were making the merger. Um, it just went public uh, in June, I think of last year um, to raise the capital to build that project. You know, so there are a few of these technologies that are just coming down the pipe. There are a range of advanced nuclear technologies, but they're more like 2030 timeframe. Um, New Scale, which was the leader in the pack, just lost, you know, their project in Utah, uh, which is going to be their first of a kind. And that's that's going to set the timeline back for the industry as a whole. But there are half a dozen other companies moving towards first projects at circa 2030. Um, and then we have hydrogen, which could become a clean fuel. It's very expensive, so you don't want to use it very much. But it could be used as sort of a backup resource that provides a lot of capacity value or reliability but we don't burn it very often. So we only use it when we really need that, that um, 
uh, power. And we're seeing again, the growth of the clean hydrogen industry start to take off just now, again, thanks to uh, tax credits in the Inflation Reduction Act, the 45V incentive. So it's really exciting. Like when I started working on these things, all of these things were like science fiction. There, you know, there were academic papers and you know, theoretical designs and pitch decks from companies. Now they're actually going to be steel in the ground, like right now over the next year or two. And hopefully most of those work and can get cheaper over the next decade. That's really the challenge we have ahead of us now is build as many of them as possible and drive them down in cost uh, the way we did for wind and solar and batteries over the last decade. Um, and if we do that, then we can go, you know, they'll be ready for prime time in the 2030s and we can get all the way to a clean grid. And since you touched on geothermal, do you want to say anything about the enhanced geothermal paper you just co-authored? Yeah, so this is something we've been doing a lot of work on in my group, a uh, really star PhD student, uh, Wilson Ricks here has has led this work um, in partnership with, with, uh, with Fervo Energy, which is again, one of the leading developers of enhanced geothermal. Um, what's cool about both enhanced geothermal and closed loop geothermal is not only are they dispatchable, I mean, I can turn them on and off, but they also are basically have built-in batteries or built-in energy storage as well, and that they can shift the timing when they extract heat to the times that is most valuable. And so you could run them at sort of a steady state all the time, like a baseload plant. And if you do that, you basically earn the average electricity price, right? Because you're generating all the time. But a lot of the times the price for electricity is zero or even negative in a lot of parts of the country because you've got so much wind or solar power that you're curtailing some of it. And during those periods of time, it would make sense. You don't regain any money from selling your power. So it would make sense to actually hold on to that energy and move it to periods with above average prices. And enhanced geothermal can do that effectively by, it normally it pumps water in that circulates through these fracture networks and then comes out a production well and to the power plant. So cold water goes in with an injection pump, circulates through the fractures, gets hot, comes out at 300 degrees Celsius and runs a turbine. Um, you, if power prices are high, um, what you can do, or power prices are low, I should say, you can stop the production well, close it, and pump uh, on your injection wells with free power instead of operating your power plant to, to, as a, you know, to power the pumps. And so you can basically do all of your pumping load for free or even get paid if prices are negative and use all and pump more geofluid into your reservoir, which pressurizes the reservoir and adds more water down there effectively as working fluid. And then when power prices are high, um, you turn off the injection well, which immediately boosts your net output by 10 or 15% because you're not running those injection pumps. And you get a surge of production because you're when you open up the production well, because the well is at pressure, the reservoir is at pressure. And so you get this sort of flush production phase that if you build a bigger surface plant than you would for steady state operation, allows you to produce even more during the periods when power prices are high. And what we found is that doing that, but with that strategy, you get sort of the best of both worlds of a kind of firm resource plus long duration storage that can move around energy on daily and even seasonal timescales, which makes it a really good complement for wind and solar and reduces the amount of batteries that we would otherwise need on the grid while displacing gas and you know gas with CCS and, and other plants. And we found that the added value that you get from operating in that way, even after building a bigger surface plant, is almost as valuable as achieving a very low cost advanced drilling scenario. So basically there's sort of two ways to get EGS to you know, enhance geothermal to really make economic sense. One is to use this flexible operation to get more value. And the other is to advance drilling technologies to lower the cost 
And if you do both, it's extremely valuable and cheap, and then it's really exciting. It could take over the whole Western United States. Um, so that's basically what we found in the paper we just released. Um, we're doing some ongoing work right now to support DOE's enhanced geothermal commercial liftoff report that'll be coming out this year to kind of paint a pathway for the industry. And closed loop geothermal can do something very similar. I, I did a consulting study forever to look at this too. They just changed the pace at which they cycle water through their, their pipes, through the closed loop. And it, if it goes through slower, it, it absorbs more heat while it's in contact with the, you know, the outside of the, the, the well, because all the heat just comes through conduction. And then you speed it back up again when you want to extract more energy. And so it can also time shift on you know, daily or longer timescales. And, and so those are really cool. I mean, that we've been looking at flexibility, you know, coupling thermal storage with nuclear plants or fusion plants to do something very similar. Kind of a common theme here is if you've got a lot of variable renewables, power is going to be really abundant and relatively free some hours, and then really expensive and, you know, important other hours. And firm resources that can concentrate their production in those valuable hours are much more useful than ones that just crank out power all the time whether we need it or not. And so we don't need baseload plants anymore. We need firm and ideally flexible and firm plants. Cool. Yeah, I'm really hoping geothermal can start to expand. Yeah, I'm 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 long on geothermal, but also ground source for for heating uh, in in buildings as well. Um, you know, which is much more shallow wells. We're doing that here on campus, but there there's you know there are companies working on cheaper ways to drill you know, wells in your basement and other things like that to, to tap into the constant temperature that's under the ground, uh, which makes heat pumps incredibly efficient um, as a heating solution too. Yeah, I was just reading a story about Princeton putting in that system. Yeah, it was in the time, actually I read the New York Times today. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we realized, somebody commented on on, on Twitter, David Sue from uh, from IT that, and I hadn't put this together, that, that the guy who runs our, our really interesting and complicated uh, uh, campus energy system here, which is getting even cleaner as we install this ground source system. Um, we've drilled, you know, thousands of wells over the last two years, and his name is Ted Borer, <laughs> which is like the perfect name for somebody who's uh, overseeing a bunch of drilling operations. But yeah, Ted's great. Um, and uh, it was nice to see them profiled today in the New York Times. Yeah, that was great. Maybe Brett can drop a link to that story in the, in the chat. Too. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure he's on it. Um, so you touched on hydrogen too, but do you, have, do you have any more to say about the role hydrogen could play in the clean energy transition? Yeah. So, I mean, I talked about its role as a kind of firm power generation option, a kind of basically long duration battery that we kind of rely on um, and run through either combustion turbines or fuel cells when we need it. Um, that's a small amount of energy, uh, but it's a very valuable source of capacity potentially, you know, the sort of, you know, there when you need it power. The bigger role for hydrogen is outside of the power sector. And that's mostly in a couple of sectors that are very hard to decarbonize through electrification. Um, and, and so one of those is steel production, where we can use uh, hydrogen as a reductant for the iron. So we actually use the chemical reaction where the hydrogen pulls oxygen out of the iron uh, to reduce it um, and turn it into steel or pig iron, which then can be upgraded into steel. Um, and, and so that's called direct reduction of iron, DRI. We use natural gas for that right now because natural gas is CH4. So uh, you take the hydrogen, basically take it and turn it into hydrogen and let the CO2 go away. And you use that hydrogen then to react. Um, uh, and so it can be a reductant as well. And there's a plant in Louisiana and, and another one, I think, in the US that they already do that with gas plant, with natural gas. But the, the, the idea is to do it with hydrogen as well. There's a project in Sweden that is doing this at a small scale now and is going to get bigger. Um, and there are others. 
So that's one very promising pathway to, to do primary steel. A lot of our steel comes from scrap that we recycle, but you also need high quality primary steel for things like building cars or other you know, structural elements that, that need to be high quality. Um, and that's all driven by coal right now, both for heat and reduction. And so the heat could be electrified or the heat could come from burning hydrogen. It's better to electrify it, but the reduction process has to come from something else. And, and DRI with hydrogen is, is probably the you know, leading way to do that. Although there are some fully electric pathways that are more nascent that people are working on that use electrolysis or electrowining or other things to do the reduction process just with pure electricity. So we're doing some ex exploration of those uh, in my group as well. Um, and then the other area is making synthetic liquid fuels, um, mostly jet fuel or other things like that, um, where we really do need an energy dense liquid energy carrier. Um, and in order to make a hydrocarbon, if you're not making it from fossil fuels, you got to either make it from biomass or you've got to make it from hydrogen and a carbon neutral source of CO2. So some CO2 that originally came from the atmosphere, um, either because it was absorbed by a plant or because it was absorbed in, in a chemical process through direct air capture. And you got to add a whole lot more energy to turn it into liquid fuels. And that's really expensive, um, but could be a route to do some really high value um, processes. And then there are also some applications in the um, in the chemical sector, where again you're using the hydrogen molecule as a building block for for plastics and other things. Um, I, where I'd say uh, it's not so useful is in home heating, or blending into natural gas pipeline networks, where um, it really is probably not helpful at all, um, uh, because we have you know th it's pretty clear that we. Um, uh, that electrification with heat pumps is dramatically more efficient and safer than um, than trying to switch our system over to uh, to you know pump hydrogen gas uh, or synthetic methane through through the gas networks. Um, so uh, yeah, the hydrogen ladder in the chat there is a great kind of order. Actually, I'm I'm doing a webinar next Monday with uh, for Canary Media with Michael uh, Lieberich as well. I'm sure we'll talk more about this, but um, those are sort of the main end uses is sort of um, long distance. Uh, uh, trucking, you know, uh, synthetic maritime or aviation liquids like methanol or jet fuel uh, and steel. Great. And so what do you think are the most important climate policy issues for the next five years? So uh, I think, I guess I'll say three things. Um, uh, well, I should say most immediately, it's successfully implementing all of the stuff that we just passed. And in reality is that's what the last year has all been about. So while it's been over a year, almost a year and a half since the Inflation Reduction Act passed now, most of that time was set just setting up programs, right? So tax credit guidances to actually implement the things, new grant programs that had to be staffed and have requests for proposals and evaluate proposals and get money out the door. So what's exciting is most of that work is done now. And the next year, in the, and particularly 2025, the money's really going to be flowing at scale. And so it's exciting to sort of see what that impact looks like. I mean, it really... These laws haven't had much tangible impact, to be honest, in 2023, um, and so it's you know exciting to sort of see that. So getting that done has been the most important thing, and there's still some work to finish on that front. Um, the second, I would say, is um, ensuring that they're not repealed. Um, I do think legislatively, a lot of these programs are pretty um, durable, uh, in the sense that the Benefits and the economic, you know, growth that are being spurred by these laws are really broadly spread around the country, particularly in rural, Republican-represented areas, um, and they're lowering energy costs for for households and businesses. And so, you know, getting rid of them would raise energy costs, 
hurt business, you know, hurt economic investment. It makes it harder to repeal. Um, but um, and so if the White House is still in Democratic hands and can repeal and can can veto anything, it's I I don't I think it's pretty much bulletproof that you're not going to get a two thirds majority uh, to repeal anything, even even no matter what happens in terms of the who controls the House or Senate. So implement the stuff, hold on to it, and then looking forward, um, I think there are three issues that we need to focus on for new legislative priorities. One is this sort of creative reform around social license and permitting and uh, and and other processes to get the infrastructure built. The second is um, the industrial sector, where we really don't have a comprehensive strategy or even clearly identified technology pathways um, that are you know that we want to move forward. Um, that's in contrast to home heating and transportation and power, where we really understand what what it takes to decarbonize those sectors. You know, industry has been thought of as hard to decarbonize. I think it's more just we haven't tried very hard to decarbonize these sectors because they were, you know, considerably harder than electricity, maybe. But because mostly they're trade-exposed industries, they're very price-sensitive, so it's hard to get policy done. You know, they're very disparate, you know, uh, designs and, you know, every plant's like its own snowflake, and so it's hard to kind of get things done. Um, but I think there are actually quite a lot of solutions in that sector. And what we need is some kind of clear policy signal that values decarbonization in the industrial sector the way we have it in other sectors. And we don't really have that. The only thing we have now is specific subsidies for carbon capture and hydrogen and a $6 billion grant program for demonstrations in the infrastructure law or in the, in the Inflation Reduction Act, actually, that DOE is managing, which will help get some things started, but can't really go the distance. And so I think we need a comprehensive decarbonization strategy and policy for industry, which is responsible for one fifth of US emissions. So this is not a small thing. And then the final one is agriculture, which again is also responsible for nearly a fifth of emissions. Um, some of that is direct, you know, fossil fuel use, which we, you know, you know, can get rid of with fuel switching and things like that. But much of it is from um, fertilizer, you know, manure management, you know, things like that that emit uh, methane and nitrous oxides, um, and also our ability to absorb carbon in soils uh, through uh, soil carbon, you know, root structures of plants and things like that, and our forest, uh, our, our forest lands. And there is some funding. There's about fifteen billion dollars in IRA to support measures in those areas. But again, we don't really have a comprehensive strategy for the agriculture and land use sectors. Um, and so, uh, you know, the Farm Act that may get reauthorized this year could be a vehicle to do some of that. Um, I'm sure you all are engaged on that. Um, but again, like that's only going to be, you know, a small step forward, uh, if, if anything, this, this year. Um, and so I think if we had kind of the IRA Mark II, it would be focused on industry and agriculture in a much bigger way than the last one. Um, and, and also on housing, I should say, um, which is an area the federal government doesn't have a lot of direct control, but I think uh, needs to be elevated and we need to do as much as we can. The housing title in the Build Back Better Act was stripped entirely um, before the Inflation Reduction Act passed. Um, but if there's probably one you know, intersectional issue, I think I said this on Twitter the other day, that could make the biggest difference in um, reducing inequality in this country, addressing economic anxiety, and helping with climate change, it's building more dense, electrified, efficient housing in the country, in this country, because the cost of housing is insane in most parts of the country and is rising far faster than inflation and wages um, and is making it so that people, even who have good jobs, feel economically insecure because the cost of housing is so high. And those who don't have good jobs or in the service industry ever have to live so far from where they work 
that their lives are pretty miserable too. And they contribute quite a lot to CO2 from commuting. Um, so it's a, one of those intersectional issues that we can make a lot of progress on too, again, at the local level as well, if you're engaged there. Yeah, thanks. And we have a training on the Farm Bill on Thursday that everybody Great. can also come check out. And we're going to be trying to advocate for some forestry policy in there. Um, and so along similar lines, uh, where do you think that CCL should focus our advocacy work on you know, efforts to build out the grid? Yeah, so I would um, say we need to keep up the pressure on Congress to enact um, reforms to um, siting and cost allocation authority to give the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the federal government, authority over nationally important transmission lines. It looks like that was in the original mansion permitting bill that was introduced and a couple of other markers. I'm hearing that the bill that is currently under discussion in the Energy and Natural Resources Committee as a potential bipartisan agreement between Manchin and, um, and Cassidy uh, does not include those provisions, um, may include some minimum transfer requirements to build more transmission between regions. That would help, but it's sort of a, you know, a patch. I think one of the core issues remains the need to just say, look, look if we're going to have a nationally important network infrastructure, <laughs> like we do in any other sector, the federal government has to be in charge of that because there's literally no one in the room now with the national interest in mind. There's only a bunch of stakeholders with their own narrower interests. And in, you know, we shouldn't be surprised if that's the process that you know, national goals aren't necessarily reached. Um, so continuing to put the pressure on there for, for FERC authority over siting and cost allocation. And I say cost allocation, that's just as important too because again, there's nowhere to go right now to say this project has net benefits that exceed its costs, and I want you to distribute the costs in proportion to the benefits, which is the best way to do it. What you do instead is you go to every state and you say, I need to convince you that your portion of the costs are worth it. And you know, convince this other one over here that their portion of the costs are worth it. And there are many examples of things where the aggregate benefits are worth it, but one individual stakeholder doesn't think it's worth it and can blow up a project. And FERC can't step in in that case right now. I mean, they have some backstop authority, but um, you have to sort of line up all the ducks and then go to FERC with all of these proposals for how to allocate the costs, and then they can give it a thumbs up or thumbs down. And it's just not a very good process. Um, so that would be one. And then I would say the other one, again, is at the local level, which is around housing. Anywhere you can show up at the local level to make it easier to build more housing that is energy efficient and electric or electric ready, right, to be decarbonized, and is oriented around transit or walkable neighborhoods or low, you know, short commute distances, um, you're, you're advancing climate policy, right? And you're helping address the quality of life and affordability challenges that we face in a lot of communities around the country. Um, so that's a very federal one and then a very local one. I think those are two really high impact ways to go. Great, and that's the, the interconnection bill is the big wires act that we advocated for. We would like to see more yeah, and I'd like to see that pass too. I think that's helpful. Um, but uh, but I but I think it would be great if we could go beyond that in, in the transmission category. So keep the pressure on. Yeah, absolutely. So we're almost out of time. So I'm gonna do one last question uh, really quickly. Uh, how optimistic do you feel about solving these problems, and and what gives you hope? I am general. I'm I'm pretty optimistic. I mean, you know, there are days when I you know look at election outcomes where you feel like you're sort of balanced on the knife's edge or something like that that get you know make me anxious. But in general, I'd say I'm very optimistic. I mean, we are making accelerating progress towards these clean energy goals in the United States. We just passed, again, a you know, huge set of policies that fundamentally shift the economic incentives that we all face in a, you know, in a really game-changing way. 
And so when you, when you pair those economic incentives with all the creative, you know, early stage companies and solutions that, that are coming, you know, out of the woodwork and are, are pretty well funded, honestly, by venture capital these days, um, you know, and it's just a growing public awareness that these are intersectional issues that aren't just about, uh, you know, addressing climate change, but also improving public health and quality of life and, you know, creating economic opportunity and improving energy security, sort of all the things that are tied up in the energy transition. Um, I'm optimistic that we're going to see the direction of travel in the right way and that it's going to be accelerating. You know, what I worry is that, you know, we should have started the transition 20 years ago and, and we're behind schedule and it's hard to hit some of the more aggressive climate goals that, you know, science scientists are saying we should be trying to do. Um, but I think we are moving in that direction. And, I, you know, what, what gives me hope, I guess, is that there are nonlinear feedbacks here too. So there are, you know, the sort of feedback systems in the climate system that are scary, or like, you know, permafrost melting and releasing more methane, which makes it hotter, which releases more methane, you know, these things scare me. But the things that give me hope, I guess, are the, the, the positive feedback loops that we see, right? Policy supporting wind and solar when they are expensive alternative energy technologies, driving companies to, you know, create more innovative products and compete with each other and build projects at scale and get better at it, which drives down the cost, which makes it easier to enact policy because the cost of policy action is so much lower. And then we get the Inflation Reduction Act or something like that, or a you know 100% clean electricity standard, right? Like these feedbacks are really powerful and, and they gather on themselves. So um, keep that in mind when you're thinking about, you know, okay, maybe I can make this small intervention now or whatever you think it is, if it feels small, it may have that kind of ripple effect where 10 years from now it's contributed to a much bigger uh, intervention. I mean, maybe just as a concrete example of that when I first started working on um, clean energy issues. I did it as a campus organizer at the University of Oregon, trying to get the university to purchase more clean energy, right? To buy into some of the early wind farms in Oregon. Um, we succeeded, we you know, raised our student fees voluntarily with huge, you know, by, huge support and, and we all paid a bit more to, to buy clean energy through the local utility. And that was at the beginning of the, you know, early stages of the commercial wind industry in the Pacific Northwest. A couple of years after that, I got to help pass the Oregon Renewable Energy Act, which set the goal of getting uh, the state's um, electricity mix to 25% renewable by 2025, which at that point, this is 2007, felt like the distant future, right? Now it's two years from now. <laughs> um, and, you know, those types of actions then helped build a commercial scale wind industry that drove down the cost of wind power by two thirds from those days, you know, to now 70% cost reductions and solar, which wasn't even on the radar. Cause it was like $380 a megawatt hour in those days. We didn't even think we could build solar, you know, cost effectively is now the cheapest source of electricity you can get. Right. And that, you know, so that's a couple decades of, of work, but completely transformative, right? The game is completely different. Now the progress we can make, the ambition that we can have is totally different. And that's why we're now talking about 100% carbon-free electricity by 2035 here in New Jersey and in Oregon and, you know, in Minnesota and, and, and Michigan, you know, these sorts of dates that I, we didn't even know you could do, you didn't know you could build a grid with 25% renewable energy in, in 2007. We, we thought we could, you know, we were confident, but like there were real questions about how far you could go then. Um, and now we're talking about going all the way to 100. So that's, you know, that's the kind of thing that gives me optimism is, you know, we, we really can make big progress. Um, and that's not just limited to the electricity sector. I mean, look at the EV revolution that's unfolding, look at the exciting technologies coming for industrial decarbonization. There's just a lot we can do. Well, thanks again for your time, Jesse. This has been great. And uh, Brett, do you want to come take us home? 
I absolutely do. Please join everyone that's already been giving a lot of love to Dr. Jenkins in the chat. We are so honored to have your time. We have been huge fans of yours since your early MIT and TEDx talks days and just continue to appreciate uh, all of the thought uh, and deep research that you're injecting into the climate community. If you like what we did tonight, feel free to join us at CCL's Nerd Corner. Join Dana, Rick, Tony, and others in a great discussion. And I put a link to that in the chat where we can follow with the ongoing questions. You're also welcome and encouraged to save the chat and find this training and share it with those that couldn't make us uh, live tomorrow on cclusa.org forward slash YouTube. And if you want to get credits tonight for being here, you can just simply click that link in the chat. If you're signed into CCL community, you'll be automatically given credit for being here by clicking on that link. And with that, I am going to unmute all lines so that we can sign off and thank Dr. Jenkins again for your time. It is such an honor to have you here, and it's so great to have such a great turnout. Stay safe, everyone, and have a wonderful night. Thank you very much. Thank you, Thank you Jesse. Thanks again, Jesse. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.